So saved, that is an interesting word. Um, the dictionary has multiple uh, definitions for it. Uh, they'll be on the screen. Uh, one way that it is defined is to rescue from danger or possible harm, injury, or loss. And the example of that would be you know, to save someone from drowning. And then another set of definitions, to keep safe or intact or unhurt, to safeguard or to preserve. And we would say as an example, long live the king, preserve the kingdom. And then, of course, uh, some of us, our, our mind goes to the regards of money. See my piggy bank? Oh, it's not my piggy bank. But if I had a piggy bank, I'd have to tie it down like that because I would be breaking it to get in to try to get the money that I saved so that I could use it to pay for air condition that's coming tomorrow. So, um, It is an interesting word when it comes to uh, Christianity because a lot of people feel uncomfortable with the word saved. Now, some of it probably is legit because some of you have been... Uh, accosted by someone that has come up to you and said, if you die tonight, do you know if you're going to heaven? Well, I was one of those people. Um, in, when I was 16, 17 years old and uh, was going through evangelism explosion, I would walk the strand on Myrtle Beach. And so some of you that say, well, Marty, you're evangelical in your nature, that's actually probably a good um, you know, rendition of who I am because for two years I would walk the strands at Myrtle Beach and North Myrtle Beach, and I would stop people. And my question to them, if you die tonight, do you know that you're going to heaven? And they would look at me with this weird look on my, you know, their face, and then I would say, are you saved? Now, there was a few of those that would just walk off, but there was a few that would stop and listen to what I had to say. I was uh, in a theater once and waiting for the movie to start, and there was a few vacant seats that were beside me. And this guy walked up and looked at me, and he said, Are these seats saved? And I said, No, but I am. He turned around and went across the aisle to sit down. He didn't sit beside me. Some of you may have done the same thing. This is an interesting word. It's something that, um, you know, a lot of people feel threatened even by this word. I will tell you over the years, there have been those who have looked at me and said, can't you use a different phrase? Can't you just jettison that word and say something like the well, are you a follower of Jesus Christ or something like that? Why do you have to use the word saved? Well, when we turn to Scripture, it's an absolutely unavoidable word. It just is. Christians for all time, at least since the first century, have talked about this word saved. Are you saved? And the reason that they do is because men and women are lost. They are lost, and thus they need to be saved. 
That's the good news of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's the good news of the gospel. We were once lost, but through Jesus Christ, we can be saved. That's the realistic, fundamental fact that we are people are not waiting to be lost when we die. We are actually already lost. And through Jesus Christ, grace has reached down. And grace has been given to those that are lost, that come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so you, you may not feel good about the word yet, but just know that it's mentioned a hundred times or more in the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul of those hundred plus times uses it 47 times in his writings. So it's not like you can read the New Testament and just get by this word. It is a word that is important. And we will see in this text this morning this word twice of those 47 times that Paul uses this word. If you have your scriptures and you want to follow along, it will also be on the screen. These are verses 1 through 13 of chapter 10. Now, some of you, as I mentioned, chapter 10 are uh, in your mind just shouting to the top of your lungs, thanks be to God that we have gotten through chapter 9. I never want to read that chapter again. It's the hardest chapter that you have ever tried to preach on, and I'm not sure I even understood what you preached. So I'm just going to get past that. And now we can get to chapter 10 and chapter 11. And I will tell you that chapter 10 and 11 aren't quite as difficult as chapter 9, but <laughs> there's still some tough going here until we get to chapter 12, and then we begin to head on to the end of this letter. Listen to what the apostle says. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according, in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes, that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that, Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's our first saved word in this passage. From with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Our second saved word of the passage. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. I pray, Father, that you would illuminate your word this morning for what you would hold for us through this, your holy word. We pray this in your name. Amen. And so over the last couple of weeks, we have talked about the sovereignty of God, that it is God who saves, it is God who calls, it is God who does the saving. He, he brings us to this point of salvation. There is nothing that we can do. We can't be good enough. We can't earn it. As the song said, it's not what I've done, and it's not what I've not done to be saved. And then Paul, in this paradox of, uh, of Scripture, as we move from 9 into 10, he now says that there's something we do. There's a part that, that we play in this. Now, don't let your mind go too far in thinking that the sovereignty of God is no longer. The sovereignty of God is still firm. It still stands. He is still the one that calls. He is the one that knows. He knows in part and knows in all. He knows the beginning and the end. He knows it all. But Paul says... There is a part, there is a response that we have to this call. Now, as we move into these verses, it is interesting how Paul starts this particular chapter, these opening three verses. Paul has a profound conviction that God saves whomever he will by irresistible, elective choice. Nevertheless, this does not stop Paul from praying and yearning over his kinsmen, those of the nation of Israel. You see, prayer is not inconsistent when it comes to God's call. It never is. Some say, well, wait a minute, if God calls, I'm just going to sit down and fold my arms because there's nothing that I have, there's no response that I have in this, and that is not because what we fail to see, as Paul will unveil in this chapter as we go through it this week and next week, we see that there is a response. And God's word is to be preached. There is to be a sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, as we see, prayers of Christians, prayers of the people are important Paul writes to Timothy and tells Timothy in the second chapter, First of all, then, I urge you that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. He wants to make sure that Timothy understands that there is prayers that are to be made for all men. And he goes on to talk about kings and authority and how we lift them up in prayer. Now, you may not want to pray for our president or our elected officials, but the Scripture calls us to pray for them. 
to lift them up in prayer. Paul tells Timothy, this is a good and acceptable practice. And then he says, in the sight of our Savior, who desires men to be saved. All of us, all of us have someone that we know that's lost. Someone that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I can't believe there's not, not, uh, that there's a person here this morning that doesn't have someone you know, at least from the evidence in their life that you see, that may not know the Lord. And so, this is what I want to do this morning. For just a couple of minutes, for not even probably a couple of minutes, for about a minute, I want you to close your eyes and think of one person, just one person, that God would have you pray for. Put them on your mind, and this is what I want you to pray. God, I pray that they will see you revealed in their life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Amen. Paul does not hesitate at any time to pray for the nation of Israel, his fellow Jews, those that are lost, those that are saved. Paul lifts them up in prayer. And we have a responsibility as believers in Jesus Christ to pray for others, to lift them up, to pray that they would see God, seek God as he calls them. Paul is praying for Israel. He is praying for his kinsmen because he is and was one of them. He is a Jew, and he was a zealot, and he was against Christ, and he was against Christianity. And until he was called by God and he responded to that call on the road to Damascus, Paul was just as sinful, just as lost as his brothers. And so Paul knows he he knew that they knew the law even his his word that that god had provided up until this point they had not surrendered to him to god and his righteousness the jews they believed that they could earn it they believed that they deserved it because of who they were in other words they were self-righteous and it doesn't sound much different than it is today. We live in the me society today where I deserve, I have a right for this, that, or the other. And so this me society claims this self-righteousness or becomes self-righteous as they live out their life. What is interesting is to see what Paul does in this passage because in these opening verses what he shows us is their love of God. Israel loved God. In fact, they built their entire life. They, they had built everything around their love and the importance that they saw in God. They sacrificed everything. Everything was central to God. Nation 
and community life was central to their belief in God. Stark contrast to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, on the other hand, those who would come to faith in God, they, they would come to faith in God and, and righteousness was theirs, not because that they knew God in the intricate details that the Jews knew. In fact, they were more casual about God. God was not necessarily center in their life, as was in the Jewish life. And that's not much different than it is today. Gallup took a poll recently. I want you to listen to the statistics. They asked Americans about their religious feelings. 43%, almost half of all Americans, as you extrapolate out the survey, say that religious feelings really had very any, any impact on their daily life. That their belief, their understanding of who God is, their relationship with God had very little impact on their daily life. How sad. Paul looks at the Jew and sees the zeal. He sees who they are and their love of God. But Paul says their love of God is a love that is self-righteous. It's built on their own works. It's built on their own righteousness. And thus, because it's not the righteousness of Christ that they have believed in, they are still lost. In fact, Paul would say, whether Jew or Gentile, if you build this righteousness, if you think that you know God but are self-righteous instead of righteousness in Christ, you're lost. Because the knowledge of God truly comes with the surrender of yourself to God. To gain righteousness in the sight of God is to surrender all that you are to Christ. Verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you were to go back and look at Matthew 5.17, Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill it. You see, the law is not the end all. Jesus is. The law helps us to understand what is wrong. It shows us what is wrong, tells us what we are to do in those first four verses of the Ten Commandments. But the law as a whole points us, shows us our sin and points us to Christ. The law cannot, uh, cannot cure our evil. It can only show us it. And so the law has purpose. But Paul reminds us that the law is it shows us this purpose of who we are, that we are sinners in need of God's grace, that it is through Jesus Christ, He 
is the only one that can change us. He is the only one that brings new life. He is the only one that brings transformation. He is the only one that can take our old patterns, our old failures. He can take our hurt. He can take our agony. He can take our anguish. He can take it all on himself. And he takes our heart. He transforms us into his righteousness. And here's the key. For his namesake. It's about him. And everyone that comes to this righteousness, Paul says, is saved. In verses 5 through 8, Paul uses the words of Moses to talk about how this works. And Moses understood the law and the faith. He understood that faith and belief and trust in God was a key to that transformation. As Moses descended from the mountain, as he's carrying the very law, the Ten Commandments with him, and as he descends this hill and he sees the Israelites who are now worshiping idol, an idol made of gold. As he sees their faithlessness, Moses understands that faith is a hard issue. Our faith, the coming of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, his life, his death, and his resurrection, even his ascension back into heaven, are all a part of our belief in him. It's all a part of God's grace and mercy that he has given us. And so Paul wants us to understand this faith in our heart that, that comes to where we surrender our entire heart. We come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wants us to know as he points out Moses' understanding that the way to lay hold and personally appropriate the value of these incredible events was by believing, believing the divine announcement with the whole man, with your whole being. Jesus Christ is Lord. In verse 8, he says, But what do we say? If the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we have been preaching... And he wants us to know and understand that this is faith that comes. This understanding of who Christ is comes from the Word of God. The mouth is the outward man, the intellectual understanding of what has happened. It's expressed in words. But the heart is the inner man, the will, the deep spirit deep within us, understanding the basis on which God saves and Paul uses verses 9 through 10 to give us a clear and simple understanding of what it takes, this response that we're to have. In verse 9, he says that you would confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Confession, repentance of our sins, allows Jesus to come in as Lord. 
Now, I want you to notice something in this passage. It does not say that you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It actually says in verse 9 that you would confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. There's a difference. There are those that believe that Jesus is Lord. They have never surrendered their life. They believe that uh, there's a Jesus, that's who he is, but they continue to hold on to themselves, this self-righteousness. And so they can say, there's a Lord Jesus out there, but until you surrender and say that Jesus is my Lord, he Jesus, and confess him as Lord, there's a difference. Now, some would say, and kind of twist Paul's words here and say, does that mean I need to get in front of the congregation and just announce that Jesus as Lord of my life? And that would be great, and you can do that, but that's not necessary. You don't have to come up in front of the congregation as, as many can do and have done. Your confession is to the Lord. And you live out that confession, that surrender as Jesus, as Lord in your life, and others see Christ in your life. And as you make him as Lord, you begin to proclaim him as Lord. And here's the thing. He is Lord of our past, for he has forgiven us our sins. He is Lord of the present, because as you make him Lord, he dwells within you. And we, he has direct control of our life. And he is the Lord of the future, because as you make him Lord over your life, he is the only one that will give you eternal life. Matthew 8, 28, 18 says, All power is given to me, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth. All power. Jesus has control, all control, as we surrender to him. Peter in Acts 4, 12 says this, there, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's that word again. The book of Acts talks about salvation in the Lord as these new Christians after Pentecost began to share the word of God. As Peter begins to share after Pentecost, Jesus as Lord is the theme throughout these messages of confession and repentance and coming to faith in Jesus Christ over and over again through Peter and the other disciples, through the Apostle Paul and those who walked with him as they share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only question that there is for us is, what are we going to do with Jesus? Because you see, we need to Make sure that we have made him our Lord. We have made him our Lord. Because as we make him our Lord, 
our sins are forgiven. God impacts our standing when it comes to life after death. God loves us enough through Jesus Christ that he would give us his Holy Spirit. He makes us a part of his family. He gives us inheritance in his family so that where he is, there we will be also. He gives us power over evil. He gives us power over this world of flesh, over Satan. He gives us a new life that is no longer the same. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we confess him as Lord, when we believe that God has raised him from the dead, this risen Savior becomes our Savior. And he is Lord over our life. Now the scriptures never call us to believe in Jesus as Savior. What happens is as we make him Lord, then he becomes our Savior. And this is what I mean by that. As we surrender our life, as we make him as Lord over our life, he has control in all things, at all times, in all circumstances. When we relinquish that control, we know that we are no longer lost, but we are saved. We are his. Redemption has been given. Salvation is ours in Jesus Christ our Lord. And nothing can snatch us out of the Savior's hand. Some will say, especially when you think about this last two weeks of the sovereignty of God and election and choosing, well, what if I'm not elected? What if I have not been chosen? What if I have been seeking God all of this time and I was never chosen? Well, I want you to hear this. If if you have been seeking God, then you, and, and you don't think you're, you're chosen or God is, is working and calling on you, then you haven't understood these first nine chapters of Romans. And here's why I would say that, is scriptures tell us that unless God is calling you, Unless God calls you, you're not going to seek him. Remember John 6, I shared it with you last week. No man can come to me except the Father draws him. And so if you are seeking after God, then you are being called by God. It's a matter, have you responded yet to this calling that God has made on your life? The conflict is not whether you are chosen or not. It is when you respond. So the question is this. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Have you accepted him as Lord? Have you enthroned him, acknowledged him, where God has placed him as king over all the earth, Lord of glory, the one who is in charge of all things, have you? 
Because when that takes place, when you surrender and you allow him to be as Lord over your life, then he confirms whose you are. Eternal life is yours in Jesus Christ. These closing verses of this chapter or of this section, verses 11, 12, and 13, are just powerful verses. Whomever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. In other words, he says, for the same Lord is Lord of all. This opportunity of salvation as the Lord calls you is for Greek or Jew. It is for all who God calls, abounding in riches. And then he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not a contradiction in anything. Because God is going to call who God calls. And those who have been called on by him to surrender and say, Father, I believe. I want to make Jesus Lord over my life. And I believe that you sent him and you have raised him from the dead. I believe that the Old and New Testament passages that speak to Jesus as Messiah and Lord, I believe in them. And I believe that I could never earn it. I could ne never gain it by good favor. I could never get it, this salvation, being saved by just being good or over outweighing the good with the bad. But I acknowledge I have to surrender to Christ. There are those that are attending church today that have attended for years, weeks, never acknowledged Jesus as Lord. They are religious in how they act, they're not saved. They have not been redeemed or changed. They have not called on the name of the Lord and made him Savior, Lord, over their life. Paul gives us this simple, simple passage. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believed in his name. And so the question, church, is this. If you have believed, if you have called him as your Lord, that you have confessed him as Lord over your life, if you have been willing to give him center stage of all things, and I don't mean some things, but all things, the scriptures tell us we're saved. And that new person, that 
transformation has taken place and has already started by the indwelling Holy Spirit that God has placed in our life. And that change will come from the inside out. And actually, the fruit of our salvation in Jesus Christ will be seen by others. Because we will no longer be the same. This is who Jesus is. That in him, we have life. We are saved. You see, saved is really not a bad word. It's not a word to be feared. It's not a word to set aside. It is actually a word that should be comforting. It should be a word that you are thankful for. It should be a word that is on your tongue, as Lori shared. As you look in the mirror, maybe each morning, you would say, I am saved. Thanks be to God. This is who we are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a reminder this morning that our part in confession, our part in repentance, and our part in making you Lord over our life is important. This is a part that you have called us play in this redemption plan, this process that you have instituted in salvation. And so, Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have been saved. So, Father, thank you for the gathered body, the brothers and sisters who come to worship and to lift you up and to give you thanks and to praise you. And we pray, Father, that we would glorify you in all things at all times, and in all ways. May others see, Father. May others see your Son in us. As we walk faithfully, humbly before you in the righteousness of Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.